Good morning and uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community Leewood Campus. Happy Easter, everyone. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, we are really glad you're here. Uh, you uh, maybe are regulars at Christ Community. You know, you're here every Sunday. Uh, some of you I haven't seen in a while. We want to welcome you back. Uh, members of our community and friends and kids, students, it's just great to have you here and uh, neighbors and family members. Chris, uh, Christmas and Easter are always such a fun time for a pastor. So thank you for being here. I hope you feel welcome. Um, and uh, we're delighted uh, that you're celebrating Easter with us. Hope you have great plans for today. Um, my top choice, in case you're wondering, my top choice for movie of the year in 2014 is A Theory of Everything. Have you seen it? Uh, Eddie Redmayne got a Best uh, Actor Award, an Oscar for this extraordinary work. Uh, it's a movie about the towering intellect, Stephen Hawking, Cambridge cosmologist. And uh, it describes his life, his brilliant mind, of course, but his own life, how he faces ALS as a 21-year-old and lives his whole life uh, in deep paralysis uh, and has amazing accomplishments. He's a master scientific uh, professor, clearly, and James Marsh, the director, not only zeroes on his uh, amazing intellect, but his relational side, a more tender kind of intimate window into his love life, especially with his first wife, Jane Wilde, who does not share Stephen Hawking's atheistic worldview. And uh, during the movie, there were several moments that really stood out to me. And again, if you've not seen the movie, I recommend it. It's a movie that James Marsh unpacks, not only about a brilliant person, but the longings of the human heart. Our fears, our longings, our hopes, our longing for meaning. And there's one particular scene in this movie I think is sort of chilling. And that is that Stephen Hawking is speaking in this big lecture hall to the, some of the most brightest minds of the world. And through his voice machine, he is giving a lecture. And he comes to this place where he squeezes out a sliver of hope. And he says to them, quote, However bad life may seem, where there is life, there is hope. Now, I want to suggest to you that Dr. Hawkins makes a big leap of atheistic faith here. Why is that? It's not that rational logic takes him there. Clearly it doesn't. But something else takes him there. And that's the longings of his heart. All of us, wherever we are this morning in our understanding of faith and life, whether we are a convinced Christian, whether we are seeking that out, whether we're not sure about God, wherever we are in our faith, all of us have the same longing of the human heart to matter. Seems like the human condition is one where there's an insatiable hunger to make a difference and to be loved. To have our life of consequence, to be known, to contribute to the world. I think that's true as early as I can remember, kids. I remember that as a young kid, as a teenager, as an adult, a long to make a difference. Do I matter? And when you're a child or a student or an adult with your friends at school or your colleagues at work, you know that there's even a greater pain of the human heart than being uh, sort of pushed aside or rejected by your friends. There's a great pain of the human heart to be ignored by others, to in a very visible world to be seen as invisible that you and I are of not any consequence. We all long to matter. We long to live a hopeful, meaningful life. And I want to raise the question, is Dr. Hawking's assertion 
that where there is life, there is hope, is that a satisfying answer to the meaning hunger of our hearts? Is that true hope? Or is that a mirage of the fleeting moment? Holocaust survivor and brilliant psychiatrist Viktor Frankl wrote perhaps one of the finest books of the 20th century. And it's all about the human heart's quest for meaning. It's entitled, Man in Search of Meaning. Frankl was deeply impacted by another philosopher in Germany named Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said this, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Frankl looked at the human condition and said there are three ways we squeeze out meaning in life. It is the work we do, the relationships we have, and interesting, the suffering we go through. All of us long for meaning, don't we? But I want to raise the question, can we have meaning apart from God? Well, in a sense, yes. And in another sense, no. Yes, in a momentary fleeting way, but not in an ultimate way. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Pastor Andrew read for us. He takes us to the welcome mat in front of the empty tomb where our hearts long for meaning, find a place of traction. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know the Easter story is recorded in historical narrative and historical facts by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the Apostle Paul emphasizes something else about the resurrection, not just its historical reality, but its profound logical implications. And if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you didn't, listen carefully as I try to flow through Paul's thinking here. Now let's briefly set the context, both historically and literarily. Like Stephen Hawking, Saul of Tarsus, that was Paul's name before he met Jesus, the resurrected Christ on the dusty road to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus, like Stephen Hawking of our time, was one of the greatest towering intellects of the Roman Empire. Schooled in Stoic philosophy, I mean, he was absolutely stunningly brilliant. And if you read his writings, you know it in the original language. No question. But unlike Stephen Hawking, whose life was focused on the quest for a theory that would explain everything, the Apostle Paul's life focused on a person who would change everything. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came, died, and rose, died and rose again. So Paul wants us to look at Jesus this morning. He wants to point us there. He wants us to take us to the empty tomb. And there, he says, is where we find meaning and hope. And there's the exclamation throughout history that we matter. That's where Paul has us. He weaves a brilliant, logical, and artistic literary flow here. And he gives us a central thread idea throughout the whole chapter. I encourage you to read it later today if you've not read 1 Corinthians 15 or maybe this week. And here is the central thread of meaning in all these verses. In fact, this is the largest chapter of this whole brilliant letter Paul writes to the Corinthians. And as a church, we've been walking through this letter. This thread is the main idea in these 58 verses. And it is this. If Jesus lives, so can I. So can you. And I'd like to explore with you briefly three truths that flow from the empty tomb. Reflections on the empty tomb. First is this. Faith, Christian faith, is not a fairy tale. You'll notice in verses 1 through 11 as you read it, that Paul showcases the gospel, that means the good news, as an ancient creed. 
We don't use gospel very much, do we, in our relationships? We don't text it usually or something like that. It simply means good news. And at the heart of the Christian story is good news. And I don't know how you understand the Christian faith. Many of us see it as a good religion or a good moral teaching, but the Bible writers saw it as good news about a person, about a person. A person embedded in history. And this story that Paul is embedding his logic in is a grand story that the Bible teaches from beginning to end, from the first book to the end. It is a story that has a beginning, yet it is outside of time. A story with a beginning, a story of a grand tragedy of how God's good world gets ransacked and destroyed, or at least deeply, deeply wounded. There is a surprising hero in the story, a daring rescue, and ultimately, as the story ends, a glorious ending that has profound implications for your life and mine. So here in chapter 15, Paul is writing with the coherence of that broader story and places the resurrection embedded in it, within it. So beginning in verse 12, continuing through the rest of the chapter, Paul takes a rhetorical posture of the skeptic. Now this makes sense. Because the Apostle Paul was a devout Jewish man who believed there was only one God, right? And all of a sudden, he encounters Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and the claims that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is God. Now, that is a big stretch for the Apostle Paul, and it's a stretch for many of us. That is a major assertion that calls for intellectual plausibility and credibility. And so Paul takes the other shoe. He says, okay, I'm going to be the skeptic. I've been there. So what he does is he teases out the logical implications about the resurrection. And he will use the kind of logic of both if the story is true then and if it's false then. So that's his logic. First of all, he takes the posture, is it false? In verse 14, Paul says this, and if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. I want you to see as thoughtful listeners that Paul's ideas form this if-then Easter logic. If this happened, then this means this. If this didn't happen, this means this. Now, we've all been in March Madness, right? I guess it's April Madness. Um, some of us might have been very happy about the game last night. Um, but we have this logic, right? If, if Wisconsin beats Duke, what? then they will win the national championship. We think that way. We live that way. And Paul asks us to consider the resurrection through that logical lens. Now, what he does here is that he uses a word, and it's translated in English from the original Greek as vain. He uses it as a literary scaffolding. You'll notice at verse 2, 14, and 58, his whole chapter hangs on this word. And in English... Uh, we tend to think of vain as what? Someone who's full of himself, right? Who's doing selfies all the time or looking in the mirror, but that's not at all what this, word's, word, this word means. Because the English word vain cannot, can mean not just someone who's full of himself, it actually means someone who's empty of meaning. It's just the opposite, and that's Paul's usage. It's a person of no consequence who doesn't matter. It's meaninglessness, often that's how it's translated, or futility. Now, this is important for us to understand because what Paul is saying, if the Easter story is false, 
The Christian faith is not only meaningless, it is empty. And it negates any hope for our humpty-dumpty lives that are broken to be whole again for us to live the life we were designed to live. Now, Paul uses another word, you'll notice. It is the English word futile. And if vain is important, futile is at the heart of his whole logic. Because futile is like vain on steroids. It's like unbelievably meaningless. Not only the Christian faith, but all of life and existence itself, Paul says, is meaningless. Eugene Peterson describes it as a mirage of smoke and mirrors that life is of no consequence at all. That's where Paul has. That's where he has it. Now, what he's doing here is that Paul is a brilliant rabbi. He knows the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that there's a book called Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes begins, if you've not read it, I encourage you to read it. Well, maybe you won't after how I started. It begins like this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, if we translate that in English, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. It's all meaningless, nothing. Makes you want to read the book, doesn't it? That's how it begins. So how it ends, I'll let you explore that. But... Echoing across Paul's brilliant mind is the refrain of Ecclesiastes. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Vanity, vanity, vanity. What he is saying, if Jesus did not bodily raise from the dead, if the tomb is not empty, then, if then, the Christian faith is a farce. And not only that, your life, my life, everything we do, everyone we love means nothing. That's the logical implications. Russian novelist, amazing thinker, Tolstoy in the 19th century wrote a work called A Confession. And these are words from Tolstoy. My question, he writes, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, or we could say every woman, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my life? And then he goes on, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's the question all of us need to face. See, there are many fears we face. Isn't that true? We fear rejection. We fear failure. We fear our health. I mean, there's all kinds of things we fear. But Tolstoy captures the sum of all human fear here, and don't miss it. The deepest fear in our hearts is that for once and for all, we would come to the conclusion that our life is of no consequence at all. So peering into the empty tomb... Paul reminds us the Christian faith is not a fairy tale. And secondly, he reminds us that death is not the final word. Notice in the verses that flow in his logic, in verse 20, he says boldly, Christ has been risen from the dead bodily. And Paul reconnects us to the bigger story, a story that began in a garden long ago called the Garden of Eden and builds to another garden. A garden in the new heavens and new earth and the new city of Jerusalem. 
And do not miss the comparison. Paul explores the compelling good news of the empty tomb with this riveting contrast of two people and comparison, Adam and Jesus. And he says, Adam faced death in a garden and the sinless Lord Jesus Christ conquered death in a garden forever. In verse 22, he says it explicitly, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Wow. Paul presents death not as the end of meaning, but the beginning of ultimate meaning. And Paul says, with literary flair in verse 26, almost like a high literary five. His exuberance knows no bounds when he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. (laughs) What an important implication that flows from the empty tomb. The welcome mat of the tomb is a welcome mat that says death has been defeated. This is one of the most hopeful truths of Easter for all of us. A week ago on my calendar, it was a reminder to me of seven years ago of one of the greatest losses of my life. The loss of my sweet mom, her name, Delight. Good name for her. My mom was brilliant. She was beautiful. She was amazingly talented, a brilliant artist, a servant, a poet. And I remember my mind went back this week to sitting on the front row of a packed church where I'm getting ready, imagine this, to give a memorial service for my mom. And some of you might know me, I'm a tear, I'm a crier, I'll try not to cry. But I sat on the front row getting ready to give one of the most overwhelming messages of my life. And I thought I would be pushing back tears, like I'm not going to be able to do this. But what I found myself sitting on that chair, I found myself pushing back two haunting questions. And the first question as I sat there getting ready to speak, would I ever see her again? And secondly, I thought, was her life, her kindness, her beauty, all that she was, is that just a waste? I could hardly breathe with those questions. These are questions all of us face in our lives and for those we love and the work we do. Does it matter or is it nothing at the end of the day? This is where Paul takes us in this chapter. This is where Tolstoy takes us. Is there any meaning in life? That inevitable death? Our death and those we love do not destroy like that. Is my life, the ones we love, what I do, of no consequence at all? This is where Paul has us. But he moves us from telling us that the Christian faith is not a fairy tale, death is not the last word, but he moves us to not the sum of all fears, but the sum of all hope. He leads us back to the empty tomb where the enemy of death has now died. And death for the Christian is not a final word, it is a brief parenthesis. And Paul opens the door as this text builds to the end to the glorious eternal destiny we are called to. A few years back, Dr. Peter Berger, who's one of the fathers of American sociology, brilliant man, teaches at, so- at Boston University. He was in Kansas City. And uh, some of our staff had an opportunity to have a day with Dr. Berger, one of the most brilliant people I've ever been around. And I remember one question one of our staff asked him 
that stands on all the questions of that rich time with him, they said to him, Dr. Berger, I believe you in some way identify yourself as some kind of a Christian. <laughs> and then our staff person said, well, why is that? He paused. And Dr. Berger said this, I believe something extraordinary happened on that first Easter morning. That's where our hearts and minds take us, inevitably. The tomb is empty. And the Christian faith may not give you every answer you long for, but it is intellectually coherent and it is compelling and it satisfies the deepest lungs of your heart and mind that your life, the ones you love, whether they're sitting next to you, whether they have been they have passed in death where they are far away from you now, that they matter and the work you do matters. And Paul says, Christian faith's not a fairy tale, that's not the final word, but hope is here to stay. Hope is here to stay. He builds to this. You will notice, Paul says, in the rest of the chapter, if Easter didn't happen, what does that mean? But if Easter happens, what does that ultimately mean? And the point is, you will notice in the text that if Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord of all. He is the reigning king. He moves history forward to the ultimate end where grace and justice and goodness reigns. And you'll notice, if you hear this text, you'll hear a repetition, all things, all things, all things, all things. It is an antiphonal echo of meaningless, meaningless, meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes. All things because of our, our matter because Jesus is Lord of all. That's what he's saying. Ignorance of God and who Jesus is and what he has done for you and me and why that matters is not a luxury any of us can afford to take lightly. As a pastor and as a friend, someone who's lived for a while, I have to say that all of us here, young and old and in between, walk on this very thin tightrope of time over the vastness of eternity. Our eternal destiny rests in the truth of Christ's death and resurrection. Death pursues us, yes, all of us. Eternity beckons us, yes. Jesus died for us. He died for you, he died for me. He shed his innocent blood as an atonement, a sac satisfactory payment for our sin so that you and I could be forgiven forever, that you and I could be given new resurrection life, resurrection life not only once we die, but now when we embrace Christ. Oxford professor C.S. Lewis converted from atheism, a long life of atheism to Christianity later on in life. Isn't that amazing? He summarized what was at stake in the Christian message. And Lewis insisted that at the end of the day, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Some who in repentance and faith now bow their knees to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are Lord of all. Thy will be done. Lewis says the other people are people who in rebellion and unbelief, who in that moment of death will face a Christless eternity as they hear Jesus' words to them. Thy will be done. Can I ask you, which person are you? Which person are you? 
See, hope is not finding every answer to every question of the mind. Hope is meeting a person who meets the deepest longings of your heart. It is not a theory that explains everything, but a person who changes everything. It's not where there is life, there is hope. The truth is, where there is an empty tomb, there is hope. Because Jesus lives, you matter. Because Jesus lives, the people you love matter. And because Jesus lives, the work you do every day, whether you like it or not, whether you're paid or not, matters. The empty tomb reminds us of this truth that all of life matters. All of life matters. And one day Jesus is going to make everything new. Because he lives, so can I. So can you. See, we all long to matter, don't we? Everyone who walked in this room, there's a common bond of humanity. We long to matter. So where will your quest take you? Where will your quest take you? Where will your insatiable hunger for meaning and value and love take you? Will it be the atheistic faith of Stephen Hawking or will it be the Christian faith of Saul of Tarsus? I know where my mind is and where my heart leads me. How about you? Because he lives, so can I and so can you. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me just simply ask you as we come to the end of this message, who is Jesus to you? And have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? It's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. Jesus paid it all. Will you in faith and humility and repentance embrace him as your Lord and Savior? If you are a Christian this morning, is Jesus Lord of all? When we come to the empty tomb, we are not only welcomed as weary sinners, we are challenged to follow him fully, for he is risen.